Hello, everyone. Happy, happy Monday. And um, thank you for being here. It We are here today in the middle of May um, with Autism Rural Outreach Support and Training Podcast, which is our new title for what used to be known as Autism Atlas. And our podcast that, that we've created this year, we have gone around the state of New Mexico trying to reach all of the quadrants and, and really see what are the needs that folks are seeing within their communities. And so this podcast is brought to you first off by the autism programs at the UNM Center for Development and Disability, and it's funded by the New Mexico Department of Health. Um, none of this would be possible, though, without that collaboration from our um, great community advocacy group down south of New Mexico, which is the Otero County Advocates for Developmental Disabilities. And they have worked with us to really, they have really guided us throughout this, um, gathering the questions, gathering the needs of the community, what is coming up. So they've helped us pull all of this together um, and have really been that guiding force for us. So we really appreciate the Otero County Advocates for Developmental Disabilities. Um, and and they've helped us and we've come up with our wonderful, wonderful panel today um, to be here with you talking about navigating relationships from friendships to romance, um, an overview of supports. And so this is, this is a big topic, right? And we have such this great panel. Um, and I'm, I just feel really lucky to be here with you all. I get to see you. Um, we're on Zoom, although other folks who are listening will not be able to see you all, but it, it's wonderful to see your faces. We today have Laurel Deans, Michael Swalby, Nan Kosar, and Thea Kavanaugh. Um, and thank you, each one of you, for taking time out of your day to come and talk with us um, around something that's really important for, for all people going um, that transition to adulthood, um, adolescence, we, you name it, but this is a really big topic for um, folks and especially folks with autism. But I don't want to miss any pieces of, of what you all bring to this. Um, and so if you all could, um, one at a time, introduce yourselves. And let's start off with Nan. Let's do, you know. Um, <laughs> hey, Nan. Uh, Hello, friend. How are you? Uh, we, uh, I, we, uh, sure, all nine of me. No, um, I am Natalie Kozar. Uh, I go by Nan. Um, my students call me Miss. Uh, so that's how you know they say Miss. Um, I'm a special educator at Albuquerque Public Schools. I teach in the high school setting, uh, high school setting specializing in social emotional support one classroom. Uh, and I love it. It is the joy of my life. And yeah, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, I'm Laurel Daines. Um, I work at the Center of Fraction Activity, being a fire clerk. I did the land and partners in policy making, and I do the Center for Self Advocacy. Awesome. Thank you for being here, Laurel. 
Hi, I'm Thea Cavanaugh. I'm a recreational therapist by trade. I worked in the Las Cruces Public Schools for over 11 years with the transition age group. Um, and I am currently the statewide socialization and sexuality education project contractor for the state of New Mexico, which basically is a long name for that I support the friends and relationship class um, here in New Mexico, which is a DD waiver, um, media waiver service in the state. And so I help with building curriculum, trainings, promoting, um, you know, sex positive, proactive socialization and sexuality um, in the state of New Mexico. That's awesome. Awesome. And I am Michael Swalby, also known as Mikey, and I am an adult with autism. And I have been in a couple of relationships, so hopefully that will suffice. That's awesome. Awesome. You're, uh, that These firsthand experiences, I think, really should be leading the way in this. And um, so thank you all for being here, um, sharing your professional experiences and knowledge with us, as well as any personal um, guidance you have to share from, from walking the walk. You know, that's how we learn things is from who's been there before us. And so, goodness, I, I'm just... I've been excited about this conversation and and really kind of diving into this. Um, the Otero County Support Group pulled together a few questions and um, we, we were able to pile them together. There are a few that um, we're going to reach out and, and, and talk about through emails after this podcast, but the ones that we identified for this podcast, we have um, about five of them. And if it's okay with you all, I'm just going to start us off. Our, our first question that we got from the Otero community is, how do you talk about the differences between a friend and a girlfriend or boyfriend to someone with an IDD diagnosis? Any thoughts on this one? I think one of the key ways to start off the conversation, I believe, is to talk about how, you know, friends and the person you're in a relationship with can be similar. So you understand that, but also then go into the differences that a relationship can have and what is sort of expected and uh, appreciated. Well, I like how you say appreciated. Nice, and Thea, I saw you have your I Yeah, you and from my to... experience, this is a big struggle, right? Because people with IDD yearn for that sense of connection and friendship and romantic comfort. And so anyone who shows the slightest bit of kindness or has some friendship characteristics or they're a familiar, like their familiar face. Um, yeah. It's someone that they say hi to every day. Well, then they're automatically a friend, you know, or, right. you know, and then if you start bringing in attraction or flirting, then they're automatically a boyfriend, girlfriend, a romantic partner, you know? And so it is a very difficult concept because like Michael's just shared, it's, they're so similar. There's a lot of similar characteristics of safety, trust, you know, someone you hang out with in the community, someone you talk to, you know, there's a lot of similar characteristics but then also what he highlighted too is recognizing the differences and what is being in a romantic relationship 
bring you. And so oftentimes you start to bring touch, you know, a form of intimacy and more closeness, um, sharing gifts, you know, or pet names and stuff like that. And so once individuals start kind of recognizing those additional things that the relationship brings and that it's mutual um, and recognizing that mutualness of a romantic relationship as well um, is really important. Um, Talking about dating, and attraction and flirting are important concepts, I think, to talk about when you're trying to help someone identify the difference between a friend and a boyfriend and girlfriend and dating versus hanging out with someone, you know, and what that means too can help, you know, try to, to make it different. Um, those are just some things. Yeah, I like that uh, you brought up the word mutual, Thea. I think we do a lot of Uh, work in my classroom on verbal consent and just like what is that somebody else would agree that if you wanted to start kissing or holding hands that like that you would have that communicated consent between someone it's like a friend maybe would not want to do something with you but a boyfriend girlfriend partner might want to do something with you and that you would uh, ideally both partners or more than one partner would know um, and that that consent would be like I don't know. That's just, it's a, it's a big part of it. It's like, who's agreeing to do what level of things and and always bringing that consent to the foreground is, is pretty key for the conversations we have in, in class. I really, I, I hear you all talking, you know, in that, that theme woven through of, of the respect and the consent within all of that. And, um, and and sounds like you know being open with those those things. Okay, um, going to the next question: When and at what age should we be talking about sexuality? When is it most important? I have an opinion on this. I am not a parent, uh, but my uh, my strong opinion is that things should be talked about before kids think it's gross or weird. (laughs) So like the earlier, the better without emotion. Uh, So in my mind, that's, I don't know, before like six, five, seven, before things get like too squicky or icky, where it's just like natural, normal, using like anatomical language and like no feelings or emotions and that sort of thing. But that's just my two cents. I love that. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also believe when kids start asking about this or start sort of getting exposed to these ideas is a good time to talk about it. Because if they're old enough to be exposed to this, then that means you want to help them understand the proper and correct terminology and ideas and all of that instead of them learning some misinformation from other people especially Mm -hmm. if they are younger where they don't necessarily have much experience so they might just have some misunderstandings of things right and and information coming from other sources that that may not have correct information themselves. 
Yeah. And this is, I mean, I recognize that there's a million other things we'd rather talk about um, besides sexuality and sex. Right. But it's important to start that conversation now and early, like, like Nan and Michael said, um, I think we can often get training and find a therapist or a teacher to help with cognitive development, social, emotional development, physical development. Right. But we often don't get that training on sexual development and how to respond to sexual behaviors. And then there's always that panic or that reactive mode of what do we do now? So just like Nan and Michael said, it's, we need to start earlier before we get that reactive mode. We need to, you know, not make it normal, you know, make it normal because it is everyone's human. And these are human bodies and really sexuality occurs across the lifespan from birth until death. And it is continuous development and every person here, you know, it's, it's, and it's, and it's normal. Um, but I think children can often get confused about boundaries. Um, if they're not talked about, they might have a question about their body and they might be shamed immediately, or the, that question might be avoided. And that question might never come up again because of that one instance, you know, that we didn't realize we did that. You know, so it's important not to overreact on something, to understand that sexuality is normal. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about touch um, as we go on in this podcast, you know, but just recognizing that we're all sexual beings and we shouldn't avoid the questions. We have to acknowledge it and, and be open and provide open and safe opportunities for young children to ask questions and get more information. Um, I am a mom and my kids have endless information. And at first, yeah, that, you know, they're, my teenager especially is very um, apprehensive. Oh, mom. And he would, you know, oh, I don't want to hear it. And he'd run away and cover his ears. But the more and more we talk about it now, he's just, it's just normal now, you know? So it did take some time because I did it, introduce it as quickly as I did my younger one. And I saw some apprehension, but now that I just keep bringing it up in everyday conversation, it's not going to be a one shot, sit down, talk lecture, like in the olden days of the birds and the bees, right? Or you take one class or one friends and relationship class and you know it all. It's not like that. People need to practice their communication skills, their verbal skills, you know, their life experiences add to what their knowledge and, you know, understanding is too. And that's going to change throughout their lifespan. So this is a constant thing. It's not a one shot thing. And it's important just to be open and help people, you know, feel comfortable about their bodies and their feelings and their emotions about themselves and others. And then they could start to speak up for what they want and what they don't want. I think that, too, it's often like represented in the media. You said like, oh, in the old times, it's like you sit down, you have one conversation. And as, as you said that, I was thinking, I was like, I feel like every time that there's like a movie or a TV show where like that talk is represented, it's definitely represented in that way where it's just like, it's time for the one talk we're ever going to have about this. And so I was just like, that's kind of messed up. And, and then it should be like an ongoing conversation. And um, I like what Mikey said about um, when they have questions and, and in my classroom, that's really key to how we kind of engage with this sort of thing where it's like, in my mind, it's like, if they open the door, you, you got to push it open, right? Like they're going to open the door and be like, Hey, I have, what about this? And then I always take that opportunity every time to expand a little bit further on like answering the question that they have and then going a little bit beyond. So they're getting like the information plus some, because since they've instigated the conversation, they're kind of at a cool, comfortable, regulated moment. And so it's like, great, I'm going to run with it. And I'm going to give them a little bit more then maybe what they asked for and then like back off. And that's been really successful uh, with, with the kiddos I work with. I also think that talking about sex just with 
the individual. Also, can later help just talking about it with the partner. Because if you're able to talk about it early on and know how to properly talk about it, you can talk about like what you are comfortable with and not comfortable with in a relationship or having sex or any of these important things. And being more comfortable talking about it means there's not going to be as much miscommunication and misunderstanding between the two of you. I totally love that. I love that, Mikey. I think like when we're talking about it too, we're also modeling how to talk about it. And so if we come to the table with a bunch of like emotion and baggage, then it's like, how do we expect young people to like pursue communicating with their own partners without like emotion and baggage? So I think if we're, if we want them to like communicate respectfully and thoughtfully, then we have to model that and communicate respectfully and thoughtfully. And I also hear too a lot of, well, they're not ready, or how do we show that they're ready to learn this? You know, and really research is showing that sexuality skills develop at the same rate as typical peers. So regardless of, you know, disability. And so that includes those hormonal fluctuations, those desires, those thoughts, you know, all of that happen at the same rate. And so they need to be taught what that means. What are those feelings that they're feeling? What is their body feeling? Not just what the, how their body's changing, which everyone's so quick to just talk about the body changing, but not really what those feelings are, those thoughts, those desires that they're feeling. You know, we need to talk about that too, because it can be a safety concern. Um, and it can be really limiting to the individual's health and wellness and development socially, if we're not talking about it. One of the things um, for me that I am just so, I love hearing this conversation, first of all, thank you all so much for sharing. Um, but it also, you also have touched on that piece of weaving in not only, you know, the, the parts of things or what is happening, but the social piece. And we know that individuals with autism, um, the, so, the social differences, that's one of um, the big areas of challenge. And we see this throughout the questions is how this relates socially. So when we're teaching about these um, specific things about bodies, we also have to teach that social piece along with it. And so Nan, I heard you say, pushing, pushing it, answering the question, then going a little further, giving that information, maybe they're thinking of it in one little question, but they don't have all the knowledge. So you're just giving them that little piece around it. And, and I love that. Laurel, when I talked with you earlier, you shared with me about a relationship class. Could you share with us about that? Yes, um, it was a relationship class in Albuquerque I've been to. Um, I didn't find the papers as I, I think they got thrown away because I moved from Albuquerque to Santa Fe. Um, it's a really good class. You, they teach, tell you everything and you have your behavioral therapist right there next to you. You meet people. Um, it's really fun class. That's so, it's so good. It's such high praise from you, Laurel. <laughs> I think you shared with me earlier that you think everybody should take that class. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that makes me happy to hear that, Laurel, because that's what I, um, you know, that's what I teach down here. And and it's good to hear it because we are trying to take a proactive approach to that class that everyone should have access to this class. And now that with more and more people coming off the DD waiver with the new allotment, it's a younger group of individuals. And so, you know, starting younger, starting, you know, at 14, 15, 16, before, you know, adulthood to start teaching these is important. Where in the past, it was, it was a service for adults. And now we're looking at, you know, really bringing that more to the, to the young adults and the adolescents, because really that's where, you know, we need to continue this discussion and have these discussions about sexuality starting earlier. Awesome. So we now come to the point um, in this discussion where um, it comes up the fear of, of all parents and, um, and that is the inappropriate behavior and that might come due to reading facial cues and body language differently. Um, when young adults have feelings for someone, they might want to be in a relationship or have a relationship with someone and the other party may not be interested. And, and so someone with autism may struggle in knowing whether they're interested or not interested. They, they might lack the ability to read those facial cues or, or read them appropriately for, for the setting that, and, and also body language and um, things like that. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Um, those, those concerns for the parents. I think this is a real fear um, and can lead to some serious consequences, including criminal charges and lifelong labels of predator or sexual offender that's unattended. Um, and I think this kind of goes along with the other question. And it's important to start modeling and developing a safety plan now, like, you know, don't wait until they're ready, you know, to learn, you know, you could start early as possible to teach these social cues, like, like we talked about earlier, rules of consent, privacy, body autonomy, um, setting boundaries and expectations, um, you know, all of those talking about all those specific behaviors and feelings instead of blaming. Um, I think by modeling and developing a plan, we can keep everyone safe. Um, and have rules about consent that will carry over to other life situations. So this can be started in the home. It could be really in any environment they're at, you know, like, for example, um, you know, just like in the home, you know, being cognizant of, of those just basic boundary rules, like knocking before you enter someone's bedroom, you know, um, and, and having that closed door, you know, having your own private space, you know, and asking consent to come in, you know, and them saying yes or no, you know, that all and but then them also doing it to their siblings or their parents, you know, and knocking, you know, something simple like that, um, setting up boundaries in the classes, we, we start as simple as how do you ask your friend to stop eating your french fries, you know, and setting up those boundaries in just normal circumstances, you know, because then that leads to to more significant boundaries of touch and sexual touch, you know, and being able to consent and ask for um, sexual touch. But starting simple with those everyday situations at any age um, is important. And then that helps to understand what is boundaries and what is consent. I love that. Laurel, did you have your did you have something to share? Yeah, um, even at your day habs too, or even in the classroom or even at your house. For example, there's this um, girl that really liked a boy and the guy didn't want to be with her, but she thought 
um, she's like really in love with this guy and it didn't work out and she still thinks that. So there's somehow a way to tell them it's all right so we can be friends, not just like get in a serious relationship. Right, right. And and that and that I hear, you know, what what Thea was saying can get someone into a lot of trouble when they they're not understanding that this other person isn't interested in that type of relationship and being okay with that friendship. Like you said, that it's a friendship and friendships are good too. I think a good way possibly to try to help also explain how to understand people's boundaries is try to like explain it like a metaphorical ladder and each rung is like you know the next step typically or commonly I should more accurately say in um in a relationship like the bottom rung could be just like you know like a high five or a handshake and then each rung you kind of explain like what is sort of more intimate and if you get to a rung with some person and they say they don't want to go and do that thing then you just stay on the rung you were below and depending on the situation given it time like an appropriate amount of time then later asking the individual if you know it'd be okay to try to do that rung again or if they just are still like I don't want to be in that rung at all that's such a great visual. Yeah, I I need that slash most adults need that who are out on the Tinder. Um, yeah, I think I think to try to not operate from a place of fear uh, when we're talking about this. And I think in my experience working with folks who have a diagnosis, it's like the people I have know have been actually very good at communicating their needs because they've done it their whole life. Like they've had to find ways to communicate differently than other people or more aggressively than other people. And so like, I, I just think that this could be part of it where it's just like, hey, why don't you go up and ask that person like if they wanna be boyfriends and girlfriends with you or whatever um, and, and find out what they have to say. And I think like that in a way, like maybe someone with autism would be like better at that <laughs> than I would uh, to just be like, blunt and to the point like hey do you want to make out or what right like <laughs> let's do this thing whereas like you know so I, I think just like yeah don't don't be afraid and 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 encourage people to like speak their mind and to like yeah. communicate a desire communicate a need and I think the big piece too as someone mentioned before is like when the answer isn't what you want like not not blowing up and not like letting it become a thing or you know taking taking an answer for 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 final um coming back to that consent piece. So um, yeah, that's, that's just what popped into my mind. I do like that you mentioned the fact that some individuals are more upfront because I personally, that is sort of how I have come across my relationships. I usually like go and just straight up ask. Look, it's because... refreshing. Never stop doing that. <laughs> that's what people want. 
yeah, just like straight up, just like, hey, what's going on? Are we doing this? And then you get your answer, right? It's better. It's better that way. It's fast. It's easy. And you just can just figure out what to do from there. Correct. I uh, such such great insight here. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. So so moving moving on and and I have a story real quick. I'm gonna interrupt you. Oh, please. Uh, We had uh, a student in one of my IGS classes passed a note to one of the kids in our SES class. And it was like a classic like, do you like me? Yes or no. And I'm like, what happened to this? This is classic good material. Then we know it's in written form. Like there's receipts. (laughs) Everyone knows it's on the table. It was awesome. I I love it, and and it it goes back to that just being straightforward, right? And and what most of us lack, I hear you saying, and it's like if people more people could just do that. Although she did give it to the bus driver to give to him, so there was you know she went with an intermediary, but still he got the message. <laughs> Um, and good on her for just asking straight up and and doing that for herself. So she so she got an answer because that that the I see folks um, in in individuals I've worked with and and in different settings um, I've seen folks just get themselves into trouble not knowing because they haven't asked that question straight up and they're trying to read a situation. Um, and, and that's hard. It's, it's hard when you have autism to read some situations or read facial cues, but asking is, um, is such a great, such a great strategy. So, so um, that, you know, we talk about that, but then moving on a little more intimately, um, um, but not with others, but this comes up for a lot of parents and, and it leads us to our next question is, um, what do parents do, and should they be talking about masturbation? Um, I've seen I've seen this myself in working with individuals with autism from you know two years old through adulthood, um, and and I've seen families who have this question. So, what are your thoughts? In my head, um, I think that. Uh... You should be um, talking to your child about masturbation just so they have an understanding of when and where it's appropriate, right? Because sometimes a vague explanation of it isn't necessarily good because I imagine a parent trying to just quickly get through it because sometimes you know talking about sex and stuff like that is uncomfortable just trying to tell the child that you do it when no one else is around but then that person later for example is in like a library and they don't see anyone around so they're like okay now's a good time to do it but it's not really a good time to do it in reality Definitely, definitely. Laurel? Well, I was going to say it's good to um, talk to your kids about it or maybe your counselor um, or maybe even the relationship class, like a really small class. Uh-huh. It's kind of um, personal if you do it and not do it and 
or you can just do it when you want to do it in your privacy. Right, and 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 you know your parents or or a class or whatever helping you understand the appropriate place or the appropriate time. Right, right. Yeah, Thank I you. mean, self. And she mentioned the class again, and and in the friends and relationship class, you know, we really talk about you know, factual information about masturbation, right? And that self-exploration of one's body is your right and it's normal and it can start as early as childhood, right? And there's nothing wrong with touching your own body. It's your body and you have the right to your own body. Um, there are a lot of, you know, values and beliefs and everything that come along with that, but ultimately it is your body, right? And you have to make your own, have your own values and beliefs. Um, and, and really it could be dangerous. And we see this as professionals, you know, working in the field that it can be dangerous if an individual is shamed or denied a safe place to masturbate in their home. Um, and when we start to see masturbation in public places or in places where they perceive, like Michael said, you know, to be private, such as a closet at work or, you know, in a public restroom with the door closed, you know, all these places because they don't have that safe place at home because they're shamed at home for doing it. So we really have to be cognizant of that, you know, and we do tend to see a tendency of more sexual problem behaviors among individuals with IDD, especially going through that puberty stage and everything. Um, because they don't know, no one's talking to them about it and they don't know that it can lead to a climax. Um, so then that contributes to more masturbation and, and possibly injury because nobody's talking about lubrication or you know um, usage of sex toys for masturbation because, oh my goodness, we don't wanna even talk about that. We don't wanna talk about masturbation to begin with, but then we're, we're seeing injury from household items for self-pleasure. I mean, this is reality of what we're seeing. And it's really important, um, I believe, to start talking about it as early as possible so that we can avoid um, really personal injury because um, it shouldn't be um, something that's causing harm. It should be causing pleasure if they're engaging in masturbation. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I think it, I think it is important to start talking about it. And just like we said, the importance of having a safe private space that's their own, um, is important to talk about. Yeah. I think we have a tendency to talk about sex as like hetero monogamous, you know, all the like basic standard normal versions of sex. Right. And then there are all these like secondary or tertiary things that sort of surround sex when really it's like an entire category and it's, 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 everything is rolled into it. Masturbation is rolled into this conversation um, of, you know, sex partnered sex. It's like, in my mind, no different. Um, and same thing goes with like queerness or polyamory or, you know, transness, like all of it is involved in a holistic sex education. Um, and so everything kind of needs to be covered. And that goes back to, you know, kind of routinely and continuously bringing it up so that it's never this like isolated thing that's fragmented and only focuses on like one version of sex. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think, I think it really opens up a lot of, um, I mean, this topic is so big, but, but everything you brought up 
my children are all adults and, and grown, but it, it has me thinking about things. It has me thinking about how we're supporting our children um, in throughout this state, these stages in their lives. Um, and, and Thea, you said it so beautifully in, in that this, this is like lifelong, right? It's not just that one conversation. And so all of this together um, with that supporting someone um, as they go through this, as they are experiencing these different things, but um, in a way that they don't hurt themselves, that, that was super powerful. I, I appreciate all of these um, these thoughts that you've shared. And so when we, um, we have one more comment that came from the community and it was, um, it's just a comment, but I'm, I'm just wondering if you all have any thoughts about it, um, that people with autism or autistic individuals, they don't know how to start appropriate conversations. And then they're often victimized in the community. Um, and, and parents often feel that their naivety will get them into trouble or, or that's the big, the big concern. And, and I think, you know, hearing this conversation and being involved in it, you all have touched on this somewhat, but are there any last thoughts about that? This is across the board with everyone. Everyone has trouble discriminating between predators and, and friends online, um, being a victim versus being affectionate. You know, um, this is difficult for everyone and it's scary for everyone that goes on. You know, we're seeing an increase in online dating, but we're also seeing the benefits of being online, reducing their isolation, being able to find people who are similar to them, has similar interests. I mean, we, I have, you know, adult, males with autism who are interested in Barbie dolls, you know, and stuff. And to find other people who are adults interested in Barbie dolls and collecting Barbie dolls, they could find people, you know, that have unique interests, you know, that they have. So they're not alone. They're not isolated in this. Um, but yes, you have to talk to them. And it is a concern for everyone. And so just, you know, constantly being aware. Um, we are incorporating new social media lessons in our curriculum for the Friends and Relationship class to address, you know, what is that private information you don't share online, you know, and, and what are, you know, we want you to make friends. And I have friends who have been in, you know, married through online dating sites. That's a reality of it, but it's also a reality of victimization because of online dating sites. So how do you balance that? And how do you teach that? You know, it is hard and I don't necessarily have the answer for that, but making sure that there's always a support person that you have, that you trust, that you could talk to is, is my number one priority that I promote, you know, having someone that supports you in your life. So if you do plan to get together, you talk to that support person in your life that you trust, you are FaceTiming with the person. So you make sure you're talking to the person you believe you're talking to, you know, all these little tips, um, you know, to help keep them safe, because really reality is the internet's going to be there. And it is scary for everyone who's on it um, when you're meeting new people there. So how do we keep ourselves safe? And what are some tips that we could do to keep ourselves safe? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's something that is, that is really big. And in, in speaking with young adults, um, just navigating that social, and I appreciate you bringing up the piece of, um, and then you brought it up too about, you know, dating sites and, and how challenging it is and what it, a different type of experience, because if you, if you're not 
face to face with someone, how do you read social cues? How do you um, know that, that someone is straight up with you when they're, or they're not doing something behind your, um, the screen that you cannot see or, or whatever. So safety is such a big thing. Although I think that there's, in a way also online could be a really good way to like practice being in relationship, like in, in a lower stakes situation, right? If you're only like kind of texting back and forth or, you know, doing, you know, Tinder or whatever, or even FaceTiming where it sort of removes the pressure in a lot of situations where you can like practice, like, what is it like to send like heart emojis? And what is it like to like, you know, different things like it, it can, if it's, I think, as Thea said, like well monitored. And if we have like, you know, digital media literacy and strategic steps in place, like it can be a good place to like try out that sort of stuff without having to plunge into the deep end and being like, hey, meet me at a bar, you know, first thing right off the bat type of situation. So something to think about. Right. I, it, it's good. It's good stuff thinking, thinking about how to use that. And, and I hear it coming from all of you is, is all of this stuff has to be supported. There has to be supports in place. It, it's not just that one talk. It's, it's the lifelong talk. It's the having conversations naturally and, and um, not that what you see on a movie, okay, it's time for the talk, those types of things. But, but I just hear that support thread going through all this that, individuals, you know, with developmental disabilities and autism need to be supported throughout all of it with someone that they trust. Laurel, did you have something else to share? Like I said, um, if your really close friends wants to help you do like Natalie said, or your family member wants to help you like practice how to do it instead of being all, oh no, I'm scared. So what am I going to do? I, I don't know what to do. But there's people can help you, even your OT or behavioral therapist, your, your family counselors, a lot of people, even the Center for Self Advocacy yes. can help you. Or the CDD. Thank you for talking about resources, Laurel, and, and all <laughs> yeah. those pieces out there. I think it's fun. Like it's fun. It's fun to like sit with your friends and like set up a Tinder profile. It's funny. It's fun to do. And then that's like a pro-social thing. And then you're you're safe because you're with your people and you laugh and you put together a profile and you have a good time. And it's it's nice. It can be nice. It can be positive. Not everything has to be like scary and fear-based. I, I love that last sentiment, Nan, of, of not everything has to be fear-based and, and thinking of how to do that. So if nobody has any last comments, I think, I think that's a great place to leave us for today with, um, with this conversation. Thank you all so much for your wisdom and for sharing your insights um, with us today. We really, really appreciate this. This is... Um, this is a topic like you all have touched on. It's, it doesn't go anywhere, but we often, we often don't talk about, it. we don't talk about it enough. So it's exciting to hear about the resources that you shared. Um, you all had, had great ideas and um, 
so attached to this podcast, if you're listening, will be a list of resources as well that you can um, click on links or find just written resources to read. So check that out. Um, but thank you all. Thank you everyone for being here. And um, I hope you all have a wonderful day. I appreciate you. Thank you for Thanks having a lot. us. Thank you.